Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas from creative and curious minds in every field. The Think Again podcast takes us out of our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with unexpected conversation starters from Big Think's interview archives, ideas we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. Today, I'm very, very happy to be speaking with historian Sean Willentz. He's a Princeton professor and the Bancroft Prize-winning author of The Rise of American Democracy. He's also a major music historian and the author of Bob Dylan in America and the official historian of Bob Dylan's website. His new book, The Politicians and the Egalitarians, argues that there are two keys to understanding American politics, and we'll talk more about those in a second. Welcome to Think Again, Sean. Jason, great to be here. So glad to have you. Uh And Well, let me just, yeah, let me quickly summarize the two big themes of the book, that basically throughout American history, we have had these struggles over politics and the idea of politics as usual and the two-party system. Mm -hmm. And you argue that politics as usual has actually been the only way that anything has ever happened. Partisan politics, party politics, yeah. Party politics, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then secondly, struggles over egalitarianism, uh, economic and social equality, that these two Mm -hmm. things have really characterized the American experiment. From From the the start, yeah. So I guess there are a couple things I want to say, but before before we started taping, we were talking a little bit about Bob Dylan, and I'm not going to go into that too much. But what I, but what you did say, which was interesting to me, mm-hmm. um, was that the counterculture of the 1960s won and mm-hmm. became the mainstream. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of filter that, although it may be a bit complex and unwieldy, through the light of of your book. Like, how mm-hmm. does that that cultural victory and the current state that we're in, in terms of that counterculture having become the mainstream, how does that affect us in terms of party politics well, and or egalitarianism. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think, I think. look, I think the current politics are a continuation of the fight we've been having since the 60s. Okay. And, I mean, yes, I think that the, the in some re- many respects, the counterculture became the culture, right? And we were a much more tolerant society than we were in 1968, right. much more open society, race, gender, across the board, gay rights. I mean, it would have been unthinkable before Stonewall, right? Completely unthinkable. So, yep. in many respects, and then, of course, you know the the fashions, rock music is everywhere. I mean, all of that. We that 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 all took over. But the resistance to what happened in the 1960s remained very very strong. And the culture wars that the Republican Party launched, uh, really in '68, but continued thereafter, uh, were a signal of how not only resistant but how resentful people, many people were, at the fact that the the counterculture was becoming the culture. It wasn't just cultural matters, it was political matters. Right. The expansion of an African-American middle class, the changes in family norms, in gender and sexual norms, um, you know, across the board. Lots of people didn't like that. Lots of people felt threatened by that. Right. Lots of people resisted that. So in a sense, we're seeing at the cultural level, as well as the political level, you know, this is sort of Armageddon, as far right. as I'm concerned, and this is it. We're going to Gog, go Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog are assembled. <laughs> ah, no, I'm hip. It's right. And it's the final conflict, as they say, in another context. Look, if the Republicans win, and this is true even before Trump and all of that stuff, I mean, if the Republicans win, win this election, they will have control of every level of government, from the state governments to all three branches of the federal government. Right. Including the Supreme Court, which 
through Providence. Justice How many justices Scalia, are they going to? Yeah. Well, the, 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 first of all, there's Scalia. Right. And, you know, through an act of Providence, Scalia is no more. And so whoever, you know, gets not named as a successor will tip the balance one way or the other. Right. And then, you know, there, there are several aging justices. So, right. you know, it stands to reason the next president could have two or three, as many as, the, as, as three appointments, which would tip the court solidly in one direction or another for as long as even you're going to be alive, let alone me. Um, the stakes are high. Even your eight-year-old is going to have to be dealing <laughs> with this stuff. So the stakes are extraordinarily high in this election. And whereas if the Democrat were to win, no matter who, the likelihood is that the Democrats would take back the Senate. That means the Supreme Court goes in a very different direction. So we're at a crossroads. We were at a crossroads even before the craziness started. Right. Now that the craziness has started, it's up the ante on, the, on everything even more. So your question about the counterculture and the culture, um, you know, yes, America is very, very different. But the, the battle, the war, is only going to be settled now. I guess I find it a little surprising that, I mean, I shouldn't, I suppose, but the, the kind of virility of this resistance that we're seeing, of oh, this yeah, kind the, of the uh, reactionary, yeah. intense reactionary Well, look, but you can understand spirit. it, and it's not just, you know, some of it is just the old, same old thing. I right. mean, it's just, you know, uh, the race stuff in particular. It's, it's sure. there, it's, it's still there. But look, you can also understand, I mean, the world has changed tremendously in these 50 years. Right. People have been left out. People are feeling as if you know, no one cares about them. And, right. they're, and they're not wrong. No one's cared about them. So, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's just that it can be taken. It depends on the leadership. If right. the leadership is capable, it will be able to address those concerns and inspire people in a way that will help improve the nation. If not... You go down a, you know, a, as you say, a virulent um, reactionary direction. You blame all of the changes that have occurred for the reason that you've been left behind or that you're feeling left out. You know, it's 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 the Mexican American Mexican immigrants' fault right, that right, you're right, feeling right, bad. Right. You know, you go in that direction, then you take it a different way. Yeah. But it, I can understand they're not people. Those people are not crazy. They're not dumb. They're not bad. They're hurting. And the problem is that when people are hurting, demagogues can walk in and snatch them away. Yeah, well, and this goes to your to your central point about the two-party system, yeah. that the voices have to be heard. You can't simply say, like, and that uh, many times anti-partisanism or post-partisanism is actually motivated by a desire to, to silence dissent. You know? Well, I don't know if it sounds dissent, but it's a, way to, it's a way of thinking about politics, which doesn't get things done, you know. I mean, there are many different ways in which the post-partisan or anti-partisan theme play out in right. American history. But, but, but it's, it's usually anti-democratic and it's usually anti-political. It's trying to say that, no, no, we can step in and calm all these fights. We don't have to have arguments. Right. In, in saying that political life is contentious, I don't mean to say that it ought to be peaceful. But the idea that parties are the problem which is another thing that's out there, that somehow it's the way we organize our right. politics that's the reason we're in such bad shape, that's crazy as well. It's nuts. So, Hamilton the Musical. Yes. Okay. Um, big I, haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Big fan of the soundtrack. Uh -huh. Big fan of the fact that Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, rapper, writer, right. actor, worked with Ron Chernow, right. who, you know, respected uh, historian. Uh, you, you, you guys out there, this is an audio podcast, so you can't see the one, <laughs> wonderful faces that Sean is making right now. Um, at any rate, that, that that divide was crossed yes. in a sense. I mean, yes. But I'm interested because you talk a lot in the book, you, you know, there's a theme in the book about kind of the myths that are made about politicians, about the way we think about Abraham Lincoln right. and so on. My eight-year-old son now thinks Alexander Hamilton is awesome. Right. 
uh, he's presented both in Chernow's book, which I've read, and mm -hmm. in the musical mm -hmm. as, you know, I mean, a flawed human being, but this kind of ambitious force of the nature, Ameri The meritocratic immigrant, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I guess he was vilified previously. So you should hear, you should hear a Hamilton on immigrants in the 1798. He wants to deport him. So, you know, I, I mean, I do And he was an immigrant, yeah, for the audience, he was an immigrant. He was from Nevis. Uh, yeah, he was in an immigrant himself. Indies, but when yeah. push came to shove in the 1790s <laughs> and the Alien and Sedition Acts are coming down, Abraham, uh, sorry, uh, Alexander Hamilton was no great champion of unnaturalized immigrants. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, I want to talk about him in the context of like how we revise history and how hmm. kind of how our heroes get presented to hmm. us as if not apolitical, at least somehow... That's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem, is that many historians, I don't know about most rappers, but most <laughs> people out there, you know, tend, tend to th think of politics. Uh, floating above the word politician is always the word dirty. Right. You know, it's always there. Because why? You're, 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 you're pursuing your own, your own ambition. Right. You have self-interest involved. Well, oh God, give me a break, right? Who, right. You, know, you don't? I don't? <laughs> of course we do. But there's a way in which we try to displace our own craziness and imagine people who don't have our own neuroses and they are somehow the people we want to represent us, right. the people we want to idealize. Well, look, politics is an art. Politics, when done well, in a democracy, in democratic politics, can operate in a way that faces an imperfect world and yet can advance great principles. Right. For politics to work well in this country, it is usually involved a convergence between people outside of politics, people I call in the book the egalitarians, right. and the people inside politics, the politicians. Right. It's not as if the egalitarians are simply pushing the politicians to do the right thing, although there's some of that, because sometimes the politicians actually do have principles. And they did enter public life in order to make things better. But sometimes they run up against all kinds of obstacles themselves, like the other party, for example. And right. in this case, for example, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are so split. Democrats who want to try to get things done have to contend with the Republicans who don't want to let those things get done. So the Democrats look like they're compromised, dirty, dull, etc. And the egalitarians are the other good guys. Right. So I think that we have to, <clears throat> particularly those of us who want to see a better country, um, have to get out of our, our minds the idea that politicians as a class are compromised, stupid people who don't want to get things done, <laughs> and that egalitarians are all wonderful people who want to change the world for the better. No. First of all, no egalitarian is that perfect anyway, and some egalitarians are, are schnooks, just as some politicians are schnooks. Sure. But the point is that the really great ones can actually are the ones who can manage to get things together. Surely there's a, a spectrum, uh, you know, even like within politicians sure. of, you know, self-interest, corruption, sure. you know, on the hey. one hand. And, <laughs> no yeah, kidding. Right. Yeah. right. You know, there's a lot of concern at this point within the two-party situation that we have in, in the U.S. People are concerned about the role that big money, money is playing, you know, the Koch brothers. Sure. Like, that's something we should be concerned about, I think. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, and, and it's a good thing that, you know, the Supreme Court might move in a different direction so that Citizens United can get undone. There's no question that big money can change things. And the fact that Donald Trump is so-called, you know, quote-unquote self-funding does not mean that the Koch brothers haven't had a tremendous impact, particularly at the state and local level. Right. And in, and in terms of shifting the conversation and so forth. So, look, those concerns are not only valid, they're very important. But the question then becomes, does everybody who takes big money necessarily corrupt? Right. And, you know, I think there you have to be able to, you know, if you show, for example, that um, a politician is doing the bidding of a particular big donor, well, that politician should be held to account. Right. If the fact that the person taking money, and we're talking about Hillary Clinton here, I suppose, 
the fact that, that she's working the system instead of trying to break the system doesn't right. necessarily mean that she's corrupt. No, but, of course, you have to look at what the person that actually, actually does. Done. You and, know, and, and yeah. Exactly. And you can criticize the positions, but you can't label their, the person as corrupt simply because the, the person's playing the system or working the system as it's been developed. Right. And I think that's part of the problem is that she went about politics in a very different way from, say, Senator Sanders. Who's to say? I mean, working in... Uh, you know, segregation, post-segregation Arkansas is a very different matter than going to Vermont, a much harder road to hoe. Right. Um, but my point is only that, you know, one has to be careful about the broad brush approach to all of this. If you want to blow up the system, fine, but you're not going to be able to blow it up on your own. Right. It's just not going to happen. This is why Trump is so worrisome, because it's not, I don't know what, what Trump's, I, I know people have all sorts of ideas of what Trump is and Trump is, I don't, I don't know. I think he's a reality show champion. I think he wants to throw everybody else off the island. Or yeah, I don't think he them. stands for anything in particular. But that's scary. Yeah. I mean, you know, not standing for something is even scarier sometimes than standing for something. And, uh, and the people around him are really, you know, not. He comes out of the, what I call the, 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 the Roy Cohn, Howard Stern wing of the Republican Party, if there is such a thing. Because Roy Cohn was, you remember, those of you who remember Tony Kushner's play, yes. Interest in America. You know, Roy Cohn was uh, a really nasty character uh, with Joe McCarthy in the old days, or Joe McCarthy's assistant, Senator Joe McCarthy, the real Joe McCarthy. <laughs> and he was one of Trump's mentors. And then the Howard Stern wing, I need not explain to you. <laughs> right, right. You know, that, really? That's pretty scary because basically the politics of viciousness. Yeah. And um, that's what it is. It's about not even standing for anything. It's about winning. Right. I mean, Donald Trump's about winning, and he's going to make you think that you're a winner because he's selling you his winner thing. And, uh, you know, it's scary. It is indeed. Um, we, we don't know where that's going. And what we also don't know is what these surprise clips are going to be. Very good. We're going so to see right to look now. At stuff? Let's see. Yeah, now we're going to look at what the producers have dug up from Big Things Archives for us. Some may be recent, some may be <laughs> older. Insane. This is insane. You, you, you understand this. Yes, I know it's insane. Okay. We will go where we go with it, okay? If it's not our area of expertise, that's okay. That's fine. It will be a Rorschach uh, test. That, that um, just about everything in my case. Uh, <laughs> so this is Lewis Black talking about political correctness. Uh, so let's see what Lewis Black has to say. Political correctness has got no room in comedy. There's no room for political correctness. It implies that you're going to say something that's going to go over the line. It's going to be aggressive. It's going to be upsetting. It might imply something about someone. There's, there's political correctness, and then there's just outright hate stuff. Bigoted comedy. But political correctness has a tendency to jump the gun before you get to bigotry. Political correctness has no sense of humor, so it doesn't know. I will mention guns in my act, and not that this is politically correct, it's the same sort of thing. I'll say guns, and then the audience, immediately feel the audience get uptight because I've said nothing but guns. They don't know what I'm going to say, they have no idea, they got no clue, and they jump on it. I think it's important to at least make the attempt to get across to them that they should enjoy themselves. Because otherwise, if we continue to move in that direction, there's just, you know, we, 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 then we're going to be living between uptight and stupid. And there'll be no in-between. This issue of 
or a quote unquote issue of political correctness has, mm -hmm. has come up over the course of the year. Mm -hmm. The Atlantic had a big article about it, you know, and you have on the one hand these kind of very concerned statements coming out that like, oh my God, America is becoming incredibly politically correct. The uh -huh. students are so sensitive. Right. They freaked out on Yale's campus, blah, right. blah, blah. On the other hand, from the left, you have people saying that, well, essentially, this is just griping old men, you know, not <laughs> like not, you know, just like not understanding the culture and not, you know, not liking the way things are going and calling fire in a movie theater. Right. I mean, what do you think? I mean, as someone who has a broad scope of yeah. American history, like, what do you think about this battle? You know, I think of Lenny Bruce when I think of this little battle. I okay. think of Lenny Bruce. We'll get, you know, I think Lenny Bruce used to get up and he did sort of late in his career, he'd do a thing. Um, um, he would really try to shake people up. Right. You know, he was hilarious, but he was also unconstrained. And it was a different time, into the 50s and 60s. But there's a way in which humor, in particular, is, is meant to take you out of the zone of your right thinking and into the zone of the absurd. Right. And the absurd very often can be known as the most effective way to, to shake up and, and to amuse. It's essentially about amusing people, but you're laughing, it's sort of something about yourself. And if you can't laugh at yourself, you're dead. There's a way in which right thinking can never be imposed. Right. And I think that's what people object to, to political correctness, is the imposition of right thinking. You think right or else. Right. That's not what Dr. King was talking about, and thinking of the political people now, not about Lenny Bruce. You can't make people do good. You have to have people do good. And you have to make, keep people from who want to do bad from doing bad. So if I'm going to you know, shoot you because of your color or your sexual orientation, or if I'm going to do something bad, then you get arrested. Right. But I can't make you into a good person. Sure. I can't arrest you for being a bad person. I can reject you for doing something bad. I think that's the distinction that's been lost. Um, now, there are other realms to this. There's the question of symbolism, for example, the stuff that's happening on the campuses about naming, uh, in my campus at Princeton, you know, whether the Woodrow Wilson's name ought to be taken off of everything. My view of all of that is that there's historical images. It's a cheap way to do politics, basically. I mean, it's an inexpensive way to do politics. You want to do right. politics, do something hard. Nothing's going to change because the building's name has changed, except maybe people will have a different name to look at. Or little will, will have changed. It'll be purely in the realm of the symbolic. I'm, I'm sympathetic to it. I get it. And insofar as you want to, you know, change the ways in which universities operate in terms of who they honor and who they don't, and an old, old, old regime gets undone, yeah, you know, that's fine. Right. But you know, as an historian as well, I'm, I'm very reluctant to go around just simply, uh, white, literally whitewashing the past right. and putting something else up in its stead. I'd rather learn from it than anything else. I mean, it's, you know, in the case of Wilson, for example, I, I'm an historian, so I knew about all that stuff about Wilson, and I still understood why he's a great president. And I guess a lot of people have to be taken through that. Didn't, didn't learn all that stuff, and so I have to go through that process. And that's okay if we go through that process. But I don't think that the best way to do it is to go about, is to follow up. Maybe, maybe it's cool to just like, say you're gonna do it and, and force somebody to do it, and then when they don't do it, still you've learned a lot. Maybe, that's, maybe, maybe there's something in the struggle itself that's worthwhile, I, I, I don't know. But um, I don't wanna see us going around Changing stuff. I think about like they changed the word master. You can't say master anymore. You can't say head of college because master sounds like you're okay. a slave holder, right? right? And I think, well, oh, so that's cool, but and, like if you take a word the master, like masterpiece, like master class, <laughs> right. it's going to be like masterpiece theater. Get rid of masterpiece. What are you going to call it? Headpiece theater? I don't, I don't get it. So there's a way in which the language becomes the source. I mean, there, there is a theory out there that language is everything. 
I, I think it's crazy. But language isn't everything. Language is, is important, but it's not everything. But well, if you change the language, you're going to change the world. I don't believe it. I think that keeping people ignorant is not a good thing. I mean, I think that people don't want, people are not, as you write in your book, comfortable with ambiguity, right? We, yes. want, we want historical figures to be heroes, or we don't Except want we them. Except we can be ambiguous. Know. We can be ambiguous, or <laughs> ambiguous as we want. I'm just being ambiguous. You don't get me. But somebody else, no. Right. I, you know, come right. on. Right. I mean, it's just a way to displace your own crazy stuff, in my view. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I feel like we lose a lot that way. Like I once read a, a sociological, a sociologist had written a book about the complex race relations in the American South, mm -hmm. you know, pre and post slavery. Mm -hmm. And they just, it's a much more complex picture mm -hmm. than anyone on the left living today wants to accept in or, terms or of on the, the right. interconnection mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. whites and blacks in the South. It was like, you know, a very strange and interesting intimacy that existed. Yeah, yeah. That's true under any oppressive system, though, too. So, you know, human beings have, are capable of much more. A, a good example is the Thomas Jefferson Sally Hemings story. Sure, okay? yes. Classic example where, you know, it's pretty clear from the evidence, I'm one of those who has been persuaded, that Jefferson indeed had, after his wife had died, basically had sexual relations with his wife's half-sister, who was a slave named Sally Hemings. Now, we can jump upon that, and this is where political correctness comes into play, too. You can jump on that and say, ah, and you assume that it's, you know, rape for 20 years or something, or right. that's a terrible thing, when in fact the evidence, there's very little evidence about it, but what evidence there exists shows that there was a kind of an accommodation worked out, and that, you know, she got something out of it, finally her children were, were freed. Um, there's no sense of this being forced, Except, yeah. except that a relationship between a master and a slave is always absurd. The same way, like teacher student. I mean, it's it, the same thing that applies worse, in, worse. In, in power dynamics yes, in, in the work now, sphere. Can you hold both of those ideas that you're at, in your head at the same time? That's the question. Right. You know, um, a humane and civil. You know, we're, we're aiming to a to a kind of place where we can. Yeah, I mean, I guess what's problematic for me, or where I get hung up on this stuff, uh -huh. is when it comes to the way that these conversations happen in our culture right now, and I understand it, is like the people whose identity is affected, the people who who have a personal stake in the argument are going to say, you don't understand what it feels like. You know, you can sit there and say that we should look at this, you know, with equanimity. We should recognize it for what it is or something. Well, not, but but you're not inside. Like, you're not black. You don't know what it is to come from a legacy yeah, of I slavery. I don't, I don't buy it. I mean, I, I, I buy it, but I don't buy it. Look, no one's saying that you should have equanimity. One has to understand complexity. Right. And complexity is a different kind of thing. It's not accepting. It's understanding. And I would say to the person there, no, you have to get outside of your identity, too. Right. Your identity does not rule the world. <laughs> your identity may rule your world, and that's unfortunate. Um, I think identity is something that's been overplayed myself. Um, I'm kind of against identity. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of tired. I'm tired of my own identity sometimes. I mean, you have to, that's the whole point of, of being an educated or being a civilized. You get outside of yourself. Right. You know, and understand something outside of yourself. And no one identity gets to tell everybody else's what you know, what, what the right thing is. It's not so much that it infuriates me, it's just it saddens me because, you know, as a teacher, my whole job, and as a writer, my whole job is to bring people outside of themselves. Right. And, you know, and a novelist, any artist does the same thing. So what are we talking about? Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's unfortunate. And I think there's a kind of blackmail that goes on on both sides. And, you know, I don't, I don't like to be blackmailed. Yeah, silencing. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, 
and I and I you know I see it I get it and sometimes you don't want to necessarily say everything that's on your mind just because you know who's got the time right but the, there's a way in which we're becoming a culture that that's shutting down conversations more than opening them up right well that's what I wonder and like we'll move on let's move on in a sec to the next video but sure. like I think it's really we see these signs we see these signals and then it's easy to see it as some kind of broad and maybe monolithic trend, but maybe that's not where we're going, you know? I think most people in America, I mean, yeah, I mean, the people that I see, people that I meet, don't f conform to any of this stuff. Right. And um, it gets all the attention, and it's not to say that it's not there, but again, it goes back to leadership. The current president did his best to try and open things up, but he, boy, he faced a difficult political challenge. So, you know, the time was not ripe, but I think his spirit and his intentions, and, and even his performance, many ways, were really quite remarkable. I agree, as a non-historian, but uh, certainly a stakeholder. Well, in all sort of historians, we just don't know. <laughs> we all think we know about the past, even if we don't. So let's see one, let's do one more, I think. Okay. Um, and this is Bill Nye, the science guy. Well, I don't know who he is, so I'm completely... Well, so Bill Nye, the science guy, television kind of science fellow who teaches science to children. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, how NASA can get humans to Mars by 2033. Oh my so God. let's see where we go with All right. this. I have no idea <laughs> NASA could put humans in orbit around Mars in the year 2033. 2033 is not arbitrary. It's when there's a pretty good orbit. There's Pretty good orbits happen often enough, but 2033 is a real good orbit of the Earth and Mars. The Mars 2020 rover is enabled to land in a place where there might be salty water or ancient salty water and were to discover evidence of life. Perhaps we would accelerate that schedule. As we say, if you really had a plan to really put humans orbiting Mars in 2033, which would enable them to land, people would come out of everywhere to volunteer for that mission. We have astronauts, we'd have mission controllers, we'd have engineers, we'd have uh, venture capitalists enabling new technologies to be sold to NASA or other space agencies. And if you included other space agencies around the world, if you included all those guys, you could lower the price for NASA and then really enable humans to get there in new, cool ways. And the reason to go, everybody, is not to go live on Mars. That's just beyond, you just haven't thought through how difficult that is. When there's nothing to breathe, not just nothing to drink or eat, but nothing to breathe, that makes it complicated, okay? Then, um, but if you were to find evidence of life, it would change the course of human history. Not overnight, but over the course of months and years, everybody would get to thinking about what it means to be a living thing in the cosmos, and they, it, would, it would change us. In the grand scope of history, this kind of like unmitigated ambition, right? We want, you know, like Elon Musk right now is the guy that's right. really driving right. a lot of the Mars craziness. Like he, right. he wants to get us to Mars, right. you know? Okay. And what's cool about Elon Musk, I think, is that, you know, here's a guy, like we were supposed to have jetpacks by now, right? The Jetsons kitchen was supposed <laughs> right, to right. happen. That right. didn't, didn't happen, right? right? Elon Musk is like, trying to make it happen, you right. know? He's like, come on, let's let's get moving. Right. NASA, you're too slow, et cetera. Um, so I think that's cool in a way. Um, at the same time, the other, the other, like, the flip side of that lens is like, we have all of these like really, really serious problems that we ought to be focusing ambition on here, where we are, and we're sort of not. Like, we don't seem to have the will 
to do that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. like in the scope of human history, is it good that we just go after these gigantic soaring right. crazy targets, you know, the new right. world, et cetera, et cetera? Well, is it a choice though, really? I mean, can't we do both? I mean, not one or the other. Right. I mean, I think there's a way though, and I was, I was, think, I was thinking about this over breakfast today, down, down around the corner at the coffee shop that charges you too much for a cup of coffee. <laughs> How much of human or, or our, not human, but American creativity, energy, entrepreneurial energy, it's going to make stuff that doesn't doesn't really matter. Right. I mean, it's all about how you're going to deliver things, how you're going to get from one place to the next, how you're going to get information reci recycled. I mean, we've become this symbolic information economy, blah, blah, blah. We don't right, make right, things right. anymore. But there's no thought about the, the content. Content, in fact, is called content. Yes. Right, right. It's like pi someone, pipes with stuff flowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Just, it's all about the pipes. Yeah. It's not about the flow. It's all about getting there, the jetpack. All right, well, why do you want to get there? Yeah. What's the point? Yeah. So as someone who spends his entire life providing huh. content, oof, it's extraordinary to see the, uh, the extent to which that's happened. Do you think that's new? I mean, America, so we have, you know, we're like this entrepreneurial nation from yeah. the outset, and I have yeah. often had the thought that, like, hucksterism is kind of in our blood in yeah. some ways because we're such a big country, and so as we, like, fanned out, you had to get people's attention, and you had to be, you know, like, standing oh, in the yeah. middle of the yeah. dusty desert going, look, you know, I have shoes, you know, for well, sale. Well, I'm doing that now. I'm on a book tour. So I'm, <laughs> book, you know? I'm yeah. being a huckster, too. And oh, look, hey, hucksterism's fine. I mean, you know, everybody has to, as long as you have a market society, so people are going to tell you, buy this, buy this. But it's not about the buying stuff. It's about what you're doing what with you're it. Making, what you're making, yeah. What you're making. I mean, I think uh, something I know something about was um, recording. When Thomas Edison invented recording, okay? Okay. Now, when he first thought about recording, you know, it was going to be about stenography. So businessmen could shout into this horn, right, and they get their letters written better. Okay. Okay. Which is useful. Which is fine. Yeah. And limited, but fine. Yeah. But then, at coming out of that technology became the most extraordinary thing, which was someone had the idea, wait a minute, you could take those horns and record music. Mm. Now, you try to think about a world without recorded <laughs> music. And the mm. fact that that technology was invention, invented without that in mind. Without and then, that in mind. Boom. And then it yeah. became something completely different. Yeah, yeah. Now, the whole world has changed because of that. Right. It, you know, the, the world we experience, our, the soundscape, everything is different on that account. Right. But look what came out of it. Everything was changed. There's, an, no, there's something where an invention happened where people were, in fact, expanding the possibilities of human experience and culture in extraordinary ways. That's what I see lacking. I mean, maybe it's yeah. there. I don't see as much of it. I see new ways to do the same delivery of the same kind of stuff, but there's no, there's no content. They're not, content has become the anonymous thing that is done to serve. Content now serves the technology rather than the technology serving the content. Yeah. And that's the problem. Because the pipelines are so much, like, there's just more and more pipelines, so there's more and more content needed than what actually we have. So you have people creating content specifically that is designed to get attention within an incre yeah. increasingly crowded media space, yeah. which is crowded because there's more and more pipelines yeah. for the content. Exactly. You know? And like, so you get a cacophony, <laughs> yeah. and a lot of it's crap. Yeah, most yeah. of it's crap. Yeah, yeah. And, and then who's going to tell which? Well, well, who's going to tell which is going to be the person with the most leverage and the most money, and that's not necessarily always the best thing. You know, going back to what you were saying, you know, to your original concern about this, Tom York, who's the lead singer of the band Radiohead, which uh -huh. is arguably one of the most important sure. you know, rock bands of recent times, I heard him interviewed on uh, Alec Baldwin's show, and uh -huh. he was basically saying, like, now when I make, you know, when you made an album back in the day, it used to be a thing. It's like here's 
right. our new album. Right. He says, now it literally feels to me like even though we have a release and we have PR people yeah. and we have all the you know publicity and whatever, right. it feels like I'm taking a pebble yeah. and just throwing it yeah. into the stream. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's a very different thing. Yeah. And like... From the standpoint of the artist, like that's extremely demotivating. I mean, regardless of the fact that you can make less and less money at it, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. <laughs> because of Spotify yeah. and all sorts of other things. But also, like the the heart that's in it, the reason you do it in the first place, you know, to be heard and to share that, it's like it is. It it yeah. is. It is destabilizing. It's deflating. I mean, I don't want to end us up in like total pessimism no, land. There no. must be a rainbow, a light at the end of the, you know, the, the pipeline the, or whatever. It'll be. It'll. I suspect it'll be okay because people have found ways. Well, exact, exactly the example of Edison's a good idea. You, you, you invent something for something that, that that for a while looks like it's going to be this, but then you turn it into that. Right. So the questions are going to be who's going to be able to harness these possibilities that we all grew up none of us grew up with and harness it towards something that will expand rather than degrade or rather will expand and enhance rather than expand and degrade that potential is always so there. that's the genius i'm looking for not the, the <laughs> guy next to me telling me about you know telling whoever he's talking to about this that and the other thing about this deal and that deal and i mean i'm all for deals but it's not it, who cares look we're all in this world with a certain knowledge that we're going to be gone now yeah. you have to do your work in the face of all of that. Right. And if all you all you want to do is what you're doing, that's fine. That's that's great. But you know, if you want to last, then you better be doing something that has some some content to it. And forgetting about even your own immortality, like if you want the thing that you do to have some impact beyond you were some guy who made a bunch of money. Like I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with making a bunch of money. But <laughs> I just no. but I, I just think like. I just well, think we can do bigger. We can think bigger than that, you know. Most people are going to want to just make money. I mean, that's fine, and that's 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 right. great. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, putting that down. Everybody's got to eat. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. But the question is not what is the most common, but what is the most excellent. I'm thinking about what is the where where, where cultural excellence comes in. Where are uh, where the best of our culture is headed, rather than what the average is, because because most of us are average. I'm average. We're most of us. <laughs> none of us are geniuses. But I just see that there's been a kind of the scientific and technological are ruling in ways in ways that are not inspiring to me and um, yeah. somewhat deadening to me. But so listen, listeners out there, you know that this is on us. We 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 have to come up. We have to creatively repurpose this uh, all this stuff think, they're think, throwing you know, out and start reading again <laughs> and start you know and, and, and reading poetry and, and and thinking that maybe that poetry has something to do with you know how you're going to live your life. Sean Willens, uh, it has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for being on the show. Jason, a pleasure as ever. See you later. All right. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had a chance to do it yet or if you're new to the show, please take five minutes, two minutes, not many minutes, and just go to wherever it is you're listening, iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, and rate and or review us. It makes a big, big difference in terms of who discovers the show. Next week is a really special episode. It's our live performance of Think Again, the first one ever that we did with Sarah Jones last month. It is a really amazing show. She plays multiple characters and responds in character to the surprise clips. See you then. 